If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul has written a letter to the churches in the province of Galatia. Churches that he and Barnabas started on their first missionary journey. The letter begins, as we've seen, as letters in that time would begin. The person writing, to whom they are writing, and then a greeting. But usually the fourth thing that happens is there is a thanksgiving, a word of thanksgiving. In a pagan setting, we thank the gods that you are in good health. We give thanks to the gods for such and such. And in Paul's writings, you normally find that, that he is grateful for them. We don't find this in this letter to the Galatians. Rather, we find the pattern of what is known in that time as a letter of rebuke. He is rebuking the believers in Galatia. If you look at verses 6 through 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. This is the format we find in the ancient world in which the writer expresses extreme disappointment um, of neglect on some part of the person or persons that are being addressed. Um, There's a specific word that is used to indicate this, and Paul, in fact, in Greek, uses this word. It is translated in different ways. I am surprised, I am astonished, I am perplexed, I am amazed, I wonder about you. Um, If a letter opens with this word, you know you're in trouble. Um, But I would suggest to you that a rebuke is not always, or should not always be seen as a negative In Proverbs 27, we read, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Words from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Paul is writing to people that he cares deeply about, and so he's not going to pull any punches. He is going to tell them where they have gone astray. And his letter is both personal and relational. He doesn't talk about them abandoning the faith. He doesn't say, you guys have drifted into heresy or apostasy or even blasphemy. Rather, he talks that they are abandoning their relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you would say, oh, Paul, the Galatians are guilty of apostasy, you would say no. They're guilty of heresy. You would say no. What they are guilty of is abandoning their relationship with Jesus Christ. For Paul, it's all personal and relational. If you see this, it opens up the rest of the letter. And in fact, I would suggest it opens up all of Paul's letters. I think Paul, people see Paul's writings as very theological and doctrinal, dogmatic, um, very structured, systematic. And in fact, they're quite personal. Um, He's not being abstract or philosophical or theological. He is telling them who he is and who they are and where they have gone off track. 
Um, years ago, uh, John Schreiner uh, mentioned to me that this passage in the message, uh, Peterson's, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, he writes, I can't believe your fickleness, how easily you have turned traitor. Um, yes, indeed, this is what has happened or is happening. And Paul wants to stop the process and get them back on the right track. To make the point, Paul tells his story. And I've talked about this the last two Sundays, so I don't want to belabor it. We tend to think of the truth, the gospel, what we find in scripture as structured, systematic, theological presentation. And in fact, when you open the Bible, if you read it, what you find are stories. That the truth is conveyed through stories, which for some people might seem rather unsophisticated. That's, you, know, you tell children stories, you don't tell adult stories, you give them the facts. You give them abstract concepts. And that's, that's not the way God has communicated his truth in scripture. And it's not the way that Paul seeks to correct the Galatians. I think a lot of people see the book of Galatians as a very legal, you know, this is, um, this is his presentation in a court. And in fact, what it is, is Paul telling his story and then a series of stories after that. But before he gets to that, which begins in verse number 13, we have, a peri- uh, we have verses of transition. Verse number 10, Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Again, if you know anything about Paul's writings, him trying to please anybody is the last thing that you come away with. Um, in fact, people have a rather negative view of Paul oftentimes that he's this rather pugnacious, obnoxious person in your face. Um, so why is it that people would say, well, Paul, no, actually, you're, you're trying to please people. You're a people pleaser. That's why you do what you do. Um, why would he be accused of this? Uh, we're skipping ahead a bit, but it is the P- Jewish believers who have come into Galatia to say, you know what Paul told you? That's good, but it's incomplete. Okay. You need to do the Jewish things. In rabbinic Judaism, based on the Torah, that is the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the rabbis came up with 613 laws. Okay? 365 of them are negative. Don't do this. Okay? And 248 of them are positive. Now, Paul is preaching to Gentiles, and he's saying nothing about the 613. He's preaching them that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for your sins. And people are like, well, no wonder the Gentiles love you. You've made it easy for them. They don't have to keep these 613 laws. They, all they have to do is put their faith in Jesus Christ. You're a people pleaser, Paul. That's why you go to the Gentiles. If you went to the Jews, you'd have to somehow shape your message to fit in these 613 laws that the Jews hold to. Um, Paul's like, no, this is the gospel. It is about a person. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? 
It's not about a series of laws. It is interesting that Paul is accused, or inferred, that he is accused of being a people pleaser. And I was thinking about this, I mentioned it to Tom before the service, that uh, years later, in probably one of the last letters he wrote, Galatians was the first letter, the last one that we have, is to Timothy. And he said, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It's interesting, in Galatians, Paul is sort of accused of tweaking his message. By the end of his ministry, he's saying to Timothy that people are tweaking the messenger. That is, they collect around themselves teachers who say the things that they want to hear. So while we might challenge false teachers, we would also challenge those who love false teachers and run after them. Paul says, I'm not in a popularity contest. I am a servant of Christ. I am a servant of Christ. One would expect at this point that he would say, you guys need to get your act together. Okay, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm not in a popularity contest. What are you guys doing? When we get to chapter 5, he in fact will say to them, stand firm. Okay, stand in the truth. But before he gets to that, he has to tell them his story. But first, verses 11 and 12. This is still transition. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Christ. This is key to understanding Paul. It is about his relationship to Christ and his revelation of Christ. The message that he preached is not something that a bunch of people got together in Jerusalem and put things together and said, now let's go out and, and spread this message. It is something that he received by revelation. I would say a direct direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He didn't learn it from someone. He didn't hear it from someone. He heard it from Jesus himself. But some people would say, wait, wait a minute, I've read Paul. Okay, and in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, when he talks about the resurrection, he tells his Corinthians, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then he goes on to say all the various appearances that Jesus made. And so it would seem to be that, in fact, Paul learned these things from others, whereas he told the Galatians he didn't learn it from man. No, no. What Paul is saying is the truth of the resurrection he learned from Christ. Now, when Jesus appeared, he was told that about other people. But the truth that Christ died for our sins, was buried and was raised on the third day, this is not something he learned from any human being. He learned it from the person of Jesus himself. And I don't know if you noticed the passage we read before communion, for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. And then he continues, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This information would certainly seem to have come from the 11 disciples, because Judas is gone. Um, But Paul says, I learned this, I received this from the Lord. So the gospel is something that Jesus revealed to Paul. Paul has it by revelation. Okay? He received it from the Lord, not from any man. He was not taught it by any man, but rather from Jesus Christ. How did this happen? Well, now we get to Paul's story, and he infers it in a part of his story. In verses 13 through 17, Paul gives us three brief sto- pictures, if you wish, of, his, of himself. Before his conversion, his conversion, and then after God called him. Look, if you would, at verses 13 through 17. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. For Paul, the best evidence that he is preaching the gospel, the truth, and not from he didn't receive it from someone else, is because of his conversion. The dramatic change in his life demands an explanation, and here it is. How could someone who was a fanatical opponent, an enemy of the followers of Jesus, suddenly become a follower of Jesus and one who preaches the gospel? Paul tells us his story. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's, there's a big shift here. He starts out his story before his conversion, and he tells us four things, and it's all I. It's like I, I, I. Okay? I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. In other words, it was all about him. Before he became a child of God, it was all about him. This is who I am. Okay? And you'll notice when we get to verse number 15, he'll talk about what God did for him. God set me apart from birth. God called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Um, This is not theoretical. This is not some structure. This is the truth. This is Paul's life. God personally dealt with him. This is also how he deals with us. Remember that one of the issues, or among the issues that come up, is Paul's apostleship. And and people are saying, yeah, you know, Paul is a lowercase a apostle, not capital A apostle. And therefore, his message it needs some work because he's not a capital A apostle. He's not one of the original 12. Paul was known for his persecution of the church and for his zealousness for Judaism. Um, The two things are not unconnected. You see, Judaism is what we would refer to and what people did refer to a way of life of the Jews in the Old Testament and then it comes into the New Testament. 
It set the boundaries. This is what it means to be a Jew. These are the things that you believe. And it was important because a lot of Jews had sort of left the faith, if you wish, and had become more Hellenized. They were more secular, not quite pagan, but they weren't really following the right path. And Paul is like, I was very zealous. I was very careful to do the traditions of my fathers. He was very scrupulous about what he did. Um, And because of this, he hated those who were followers of Jesus. Because they were saying, you know, all the promises in the scriptures about Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. And for us, we would say, yes, Paul, uh, that's, that's the gospel. But put yourself in Paul's place, in the place of any Jew who is not a believer. You're saying that God came in the flesh, and then he was crucified like a common criminal in the most degrading way possible. You're saying that's God. That is blasphemy. And so Paul persecuted the church. In fact, one could say the fact that he was so zealous for Judaism is, is demonstrated by his persecution, persecution of the church. He wanted to destroy it. But this is only the first part of the story. The second part is his conversion. And as I mentioned, there's a shift. God set me apart from birth. God called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Several things become really apparent here, and that is that God's choice precedes conversion. We tend to think of people are looking for God and they finally find him. No, it is God who seeks us out, and it is God who chose Paul even before his birth. We saw this in Jeremiah, what God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And Paul recognizes that the way he used to live was in opposition to God. He still sees that God is in control and was guiding his path all along. So God, in fact, chooses before Paul is converted. Secondly, God's choice leads to God's call. God doesn't simply say, I choose you, and then sort of sits back. But he, in fact, then follows it up with a call. God called him, called me by his grace. He called him graciously. And it has to be grace, because who in their right mind would call this person who hates God's people and wants to kill them? He was there when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr of the church. But lovingly, miraculously, graciously, God called him. But thirdly, after the choice and after the call, there is, in fact, revelation. We shouldn't think that God says, okay, I choose you, I call you, and then, again, sit back. God, in fact, reveals himself, and God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Um, Or revealed his son to me. We might come back to this next week. Um, you know, prepositions always get you in trouble, but I think both work. That in 
Paul Christ is revealed, but to Paul Christ is revealed. So he's on the road to Damascus. Jesus confronts him. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus who you persecute. Um, This begins the revelation of who Jesus is to Paul. And then, having been revealed, there is the commission. God calls him to be a, a preacher, a missionary among the Gentiles. So he chose Paul, he called Paul, he revealed Jesus to Paul, he commissions Paul to preach to the Gentiles. It's a very personal experience, every step of the way. It's not abstract or theoretical, it's quite personal. Now that he is a child of God, what is he supposed to do? Well, he's been commissioned to preach to the Gentiles. Um, And here I think we find something quite, I want to say profound, but perhaps also disturbing. And that is that God chose him, God called him, God revealed Jesus to him, he commissioned him, and Paul is off the scene. For at least 14 years, possibly 17 years. We're not like that. If somebody says, I've become a Christian and they're a celebrity, we want to push them out front for everyone to see. Um, Paul has this dramatic conversion and God sends him to the desert for three years. And then after the desert, he sends him back to his hometown, Tarsus, for 14 years. And then finally Barnabas goes to Tarsus and gets him and brings him to Antioch. This is this isn't the way we would do things, okay? We would, in fact, want Paul, I mean, he's had this dramatic conversion experience. He needs to tell people about it, and yet this is not what God has him do. You'll see, he says, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Uh, The NIV misses something here. Um, I did not consult any man. Um, Paul writes, I did not consult with flesh and blood. And you're like, well, what's the difference? You know, human being, flesh and blood. Well, in Matthew uh, chapter 16, you know, when when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Somebody, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, and he says, who do you say that I am? And that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter says. And then Paul sa- or Jesus says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. So there's this distinct, you know, either God reveals it to you or flesh and blood does. And Paul says, I did not consult with flesh and blood, that what he received was in fact from God. So he doesn't go up to Jerusalem, which is, I mean, that's where all the apostles are. I mean, if you've had this dramatic conversion experience, isn't that what you want to do? Go up and be confirmed by these apostles? No. In fact, he went to Arabia. And then he returned to Damascus. And then at a later point, he returns 
or he comes from Antioch and goes to Jerusalem. Okay. What did Paul do for three years? We're not told. But a better question is, where is Arabia? And what was Paul doing in Arabia? Okay. If you look at chapter 4, verse number 25, this is another story he's telling about Sarah and Hagar. We went through the life of Abraham. Sarah was his wife. Hagar was the handmaiden that Sarah said, sleep with her. And if she gets pregnant, it'll be my child. Paul says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. So I would suggest to you that what Paul was for three years was at Mount Sinai. We think of Saudi Arabia as Arabia, but in the ancient world, it included the Sinai Peninsula as well. So Paul was at Sinai for three years. We're not told, but it has been suggested that this was a time in which Jesus himself appeared to Paul and taught him. And so the things that Paul received from the Lord, he received while he was at Sinai for those three years. Okay. So he didn't get his message from flesh and blood, but from Jesus himself. As I said, I'm really struck by the fact that this is someone who's chosen by God, who's called by God, commissioned by God, and God reveals himself in his son to this man. And yet we have what we, some have called the hidden years. What was he doing for three years? Why wasn't he out preaching? Why wasn't he out evangelizing? One is reminded of Moses, who when he escaped from Egypt, went to Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, for 40 years, God prepared him to do the work of leading Israel out of Egypt. And again, in a, a culture that celebrates celebrity, uh, I think we would do things quite differently. By the way, Daniel Borston defines celebrity as somebody who's well-known for being well-known. Um, they haven't really done anything. Uh, Paul had a dramatic experience. Let's get him on TV. Let's tell the world what happened to him and instead we find him basically disappearing for at least three years verse 18 then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days I saw none of the other apostles only James the Lord's brother I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie As I said, it's striking that Paul disappears for three years and then he shows up in Jerusalem for 15 days. Um, he goes up and he talks to Peter. Who better to talk to to find out uh, what's going on? Um, but again, Paul is not as specific as we might like. What were you doing in Arabia for three years? Doesn't tell us. So what did you and Peter talk about? Doesn't tell us. Okay. Simply that he talked to Peter and to James the Lord's brother, Jesus' half-brother. Um, what did they talk about? Well, I would have to think it's the gospel. That Paul says, this is what was revealed to me. For three years I've been in Sinai, and the Lord has revealed these things to me. Um, it is striking that he only sees Peter, 
it is possible that the other apostles were not in Jerusalem at that time, that they had been scattered or had been sent abroad uh, during the time of persecution. But verse number 20 is very striking and a, a bit strange. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. This is, in the Roman world, a legal oath. Okay, This is, if you were going to court and you were... You know, in our culture, put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is a formula where you say, um, I assure you before God, what I am writing you is no lie. Okay? Paul wants to set the record straight. People have been telling stories about him. He wants to tell his story and make sure that the Galatians get it right. He's not sort of, yeah, I did this and then I did that. He is quite serious about the story that he is telling and what has happened. So, three years he's at Sinai, 15 days with Peter, and he meets James. That's it. That's all he tells us. We'd like more information. I think the Galatians might like some more information. Um, yeah, but, but he doesn't tell them. Look at verse 21. Later I went to Syria... Antioch is in Syria, and Cilicia, his hometown, Tarsus, is in Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. That is to say, Paul was not under the supervision of the churches in Judea around Jerusalem. Uh, they didn't know who he was. All they knew is this is a guy that used to persecute the church. Um, Verse 23, they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. It's the next section that we begin to find some difficulties. Look, if you would, at verses 1 and uh, first verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll get to verse 2 in a minute. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So, after 14 years, Paul once again goes to Jerusalem. And he goes with Barnabas, who he took on his first missionary journey. The people in Galatia knows who, they know who Barnabas is, and Titus. Again, we want to know, 14 years? Paul, what have you been doing for 14 years? Um, Well, in Acts chapter 11, we are told that there's a church in Antioch, in Syria. Those who were scattered by the persecution, some of them make their way up to Antioch. And there, they travel, they tell the good news of what Jesus had done. In other words, they take the message with them. This is Acts 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Mm, they've crossed the line. Now they're talking to Gentiles, okay. telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, speaking of Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas, who's in Jerusalem, is sent by the people in Jerusalem to check it out in Antioch. We've, we've heard some rumors that there are non-Jews who have put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And Barnabas, you need to check this out. And in fact, that's what he does. Um, by the way, Barnabas was not his given name, if you wish. His name is uh, Joseph. But the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas. Okay? It means son of encouragement. Uh, he was from Cyprus. He sold some land and gave it to the apostles. He is known as a man who brought encouragement to them. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And so they send him up there, and it seems that he decides to stay there. He doesn't just you know, go up and then come back to Jerusalem to give a report. He stays with them and preaches it. But then listen to what happens next. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's his Hebrew name, the Hebrew name for Paul, his Roman name. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Fascinating. Paul spends three years in Sinai. He goes to Jerusalem for 15 days. He makes his way home to his hometown, Tarsus. And it seems that he was there for 13 years. And he doesn't say, hey, choose me. Pick me. I'll be your speaker because I have a great story to tell. It is, in fact, Barnabas who goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch, where both Paul and Barnabas spoke to the people there. This was, in fact, what he was commissioned to do. But he didn't jump into it right away. And in fact, God did not choose for him to jump into it right away. At least 16 years, perhaps 17 years, have passed since his conversion. And now God is ready to use him to fulfill his commission. Now, Paul says that in fact, he goes down to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Um, look at verse number 2 of chapter 2. I went in response, that is to Jerusalem, in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Fascinating. Um, there is, in fact, a prophet in Agabus a name Agabus, um, who goes to Antioch and he tells them, God gives him a revelation and says, in fact, that there is going to be a famine. Uh, one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. 
This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Paul went to Jerusalem because of a revelation given to Agabus, that in fact there's a famine, it's going to be all over the world. And so the people in Antioch, they collect money, what we would call an offering, they collect money, they give it to Barnabas and to Saul to take it down. I've mentioned before, when Saul is killed, uh, Stephen is killed, the church in Jerusalem scatters. But only those who have money can leave. Those who don't have money are pretty much stuck in Jerusalem. And they, if they're that poor, then they are really going to be affected by this famine. And so the brothers and sisters in Antioch decide to take up a collection. They give it to Barnabas and to Saul to take it to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with the apostles and he tells them, this is the gospel that I have received. This is the gospel, the good news that I am preaching. Why? For fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Again, so different from what we expect. If you've had this transforming experience, this conversion on the road to Damascus, you spent three years at Sinai, and I think with the Lord Jesus, revealing the gospel to you, um, I think you're going to be pretty self-confident. I've had this killer experience. And I've had these three years with the Lord. Um, but you may remember at the beginning of the letter that Paul writes, and he says um, in verse number two, and all the brothers with me. Paul's not a lone ranger. He doesn't stand alone. And so when he goes, he meets with the leaders of the church. But notice something. I did this privately to those who seem to be leaders. I would suggest to you that the people who are confusing the Galatians, they don't know about this meeting. They don't know that Paul actually met with Peter and the other apostles to confirm that the gospel that he was preaching was the gospel. And that gospel said nothing about 613 laws that the Gentiles have to keep. If the Jewish believers who have gone to Galatia to confuse people had known this, they'd have to They'd have to think twice. They'd have to tweak their message. But in fact, Paul says, listen, I did this privately and I was confirmed in the truth that the gospel I had received was in fact the gospel. But by the way, when Paul goes to Jerusalem and meets privately, um, what if the apostles had said, no, Paul, uh, you're not actually preaching the gospel. Well, it would have been a little late because Paul's been preaching at least for a year in Antioch. But instead, they confirm that what he is saying is true. He looks to them for confirmation. This is the beginning of Paul's story. First of all, what he was like before his conversion. And it's interesting how he puts it. It's I, 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 I. And then what God did. God chose me. He called me. He commissioned me. He revealed Jesus to me. And then what did Paul do? He disappears. And it's one of those things, you know, people say, when I get to heaven, uh, the question I'm going to ask, this would be a question I would ask. Paul, what did you do for three years? 
I'm assuming you were at Mount Sinai. Was the Lord Jesus, did the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, appear to you? I mean, where did you receive the gospel? You didn't receive it from human beings. You must have received it from Jesus. Is that when it happened? And Paul, why did you wait 13 years before preaching in Antioch? It's so counterintuitive for us. It seems very, a very inefficient use of time. Time management, Paul, get out there. Preach the gospel. But Paul's not in charge. God is. God has revealed the truth to him because God chose him, God called him, God commissioned him. And in a culture in which it's all about me and my choice, I mean, isn't choice like the greatest thing we think in this country that we can choose? We see, in fact, that it is God who chooses Paul and changes his life dramatically. And then it's like, well, okay, now that I've changed you, you can make all the decisions you want. No. He's sent to Sinai. Then he goes back home. And it's only when Barnabas goes from Syria over to Cilicia, southern Turkey, gets him and brings him to Antioch, that he begins to preach. He's there for a year, then Agabus says the famine, they collect money, he goes to Jerusalem. And then once he goes back to Antioch, the Spirit says, send Paul and Barnabas on a journey. And they go on a journey, and they end up in Galatia. And people are converted. But now they are leaving that relationship because they've become confused. The Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week as Paul continues his story because now it gets tricky. Because up to this point, it would seem that everything Paul says is in line with what the apostles are preaching. But Paul will, in fact, scold and correct the apostle Peter, the head of the church, many would argue, because he is doing something wrong. He's bringing in some of those 613 laws that he had ignored until other Jews come along. Anyway, the Lord willing, we will see this next week. I would just leave you with this, that Paul's conversion was an amazing thing, and it was not at his initiative. And if we would think about it carefully, If we are the children of God, it is not at our initiative. It is that God has called us and that God has commissioned us. And he's still in charge of our lives. We're supposed to be. But oftentimes we think of I, 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 what I'm going to do. Here is perhaps the greatest apostle in the New Testament and he's not making the decisions, is he? God is. That's certainly something worth thinking about. Let's pray together. Our Father, the book of Galatians challenges us in many ways. Our expectation of Paul is that he's going to present a very structured legal argument 
to argue that faith in Jesus is all that one needs. Instead, he tells us, he tells the Galatians his story. And his story is about what you did in his life. How you chose him and called him and commissioned him. And then in a way that to us doesn't make a lot of sense, you hid him away for more than a decade, a decade and a half, before you brought him to the job for which you had commissioned him. We would argue this is not the way we would do things. This is not an efficient use of time. But you are God and we are not. And when the time was right, Paul was ready to preach. And he did preach and spread your gospel throughout that known world. We live in a society in which argumentation seems the way to convince people. Paul tells his story. And by your grace, may we tell our story to others as you give us the opportunity, as you open doors, as you allow us to speak to others. I thank you for bringing us together today We pray for Ruth as she comes back this week. You would give her a safe journey. And for the Nobles as they return as well. Thank you for your love and for your grace that you've shown in your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.